Today is 19 February 2009, about 1.38 Eastern Time. This is the Open Ontology Repository conference call for this day. I'm going to give a quick review of what has been done for the last year or so, and then we will follow with Mark Newson, Natasha Noy, Mark Dean, Paul Dudelier, sorry if I mispronounced it, uh, I'll have to give up on the rest of the names, uh, on to uh, finally Michael Gruniger, and then we'll have a discussion. Uh, Peter will be our moderator, I'll be the chair. And with that, I'm now looking at slide one, um, the review of the Open Ontology Repository. So slide two, I just want to go through, through a few things. I want to inventory or review what we have already done and have available. I want to try and identify some gaps. Uh, I want to make clear what the assumptions are, what our architectural principles are, uh, what the suggested prioritization is in terms of core capabilities or needs, and then some uh, questions about a plan or lack thereof. On to slide three. So here's a quick inventory of what this group has done over the last year or so. We have identified a scope for the Open Ontology Repository, have a definition of it. We have goals, which were identified very nicely. We have the Ontology Summit from 2008 Communique, which gives a very nice uh, background information, uh, expectations, goals, and actually requirements also embedded in there. You do have additional requirements that have been gathered and organized on the requirements page for the OOR. I'll say a little more about that in a moment. We have developed some use cases. We have identified architectural principles in both the 2008 communique and on uh, other documents for the OOR. We do have had been, been developed a prototype. And just as of yesterday, we now have a sandbox, which is based on the NB, NB, NCBO BioPortal available for use and for experimentation. Slide four, please. So, given what we have, here's a real quick and dirty gap analysis. Our, our use cases are certainly incomplete. That's to be expected. Um, we have not done a proper requirements analysis and decomposition, whichever paradigm you'd like to use. We really don't have any complete architecture or artifacts to back up what we'd like to do. And I think the biggest gap is we do not have a clear plan of action to date, at least one that I'm aware of or has been agreed to. Slide five. So some definitions. I always like to know what we're talking about. I get confused very easily. So WordNet has a definition for a repository. It's a place where you can keep things. And unfortunately, that's sort of a one-directional notion of a storage. Yeah, I can put things there, but I don't know if I can find them or get them back. And of course, the Ontolog community developed their own definition, which is in the communique of 2008. The facility where we can store and retrieve and manage ontology and related information artifacts. So with that in mind, that of course leaves a lot of work to do in order to implement that properly and meet some of our goals and expectations. Slide six. So what are some of those goals? Again, these were identified in conversations and I believe there is consensus and agreement on these based on the communication from 2008. We want to be able to create, share, search, govern, manage ontologies, and then also link to databases and XML schema structured document and documents. Now, the complementary goals, or if you like, I think these are entailments of having an OOR, is that we would foster the semantic web gang. Uh, we could identify and promote best practices, both for the creation, the use, reuse, integration, and other operations you perform on ontologies and have provisioning services relevant for some of the common languages that are out there currently. On to 
wide seven, please. Some assumptions. Now, I believe most of these assumptions I took came, or that you see on the slide, came from the communique. So I believe we all agreed that we have to be able to support ev evolutionary development, uh, for the large part being that things keep changing, and more importantly, we may not know all that we need to have in an OOR. In particular, as the OOR develops, I can envision new uses and needs being addressed, or excuse me, identified. We want to be able to partition the functionality of the OOR so we can support that evolutionary development. Now, this next third bullet item is a point that I believe has not been properly resolved, as Peter brought to my attention. In the requirements page, or web page for the OOR, you do identify that the OOR should not store instance data apart from that that's needed for the OOR infrastructure. However, as Peter points out, uh, some ontologies, the difference between the ontology and the instance data uh, can be confused at some points or different than other, or it could be representationally language dependent. And as a group, we have not resolved how we're going to deal with that. I believe there was a consensus that we should not store what's commonly called instance data, instances of an ontology in the repository, but I believe we have not addressed that properly. Part of that may be resolved by the metadata that's required and the governance procedures that we have. But again, that's still an open issue that the community has to deal with. Uh, and as another assumption, we're going to support arbitrary representation languages. And in particular, the repository should be mostly independent of representation languages. Now, that mostly part or that qualifier would get back to how we are going to actually implement the OOR. Is it going to be ontologically driven or not? Uh, and if it's ontologically driven, obviously we're going to have to choose a language and so on. Uh, there should be an initial support for OWL at least. I believe there was a consensus for that. And there, were, there was long discussion as to the metadata and the provenance information that will be crucial to meet the expectations and provide the services that we all agree to. And for the most part, if we can do it, to try and conform to standards if they are out there. And if they're not out there, perhaps we can bring uh, to the attention of the appropriate body the lack thereof. Slide eight. So some, what I call or identify as architectural principles were agreed to in the communique, among other places. Again, we're going to support evolutionary development. We're going to support distributed instances of the OOR. It should be scalable, and of course that's coupled with both the distri distribution and the ability to support evolutionary development. And again, in order to be scalable and have distributed instances, we need to have federation. The services that are provided, and of course, exactly what a service is in this case, is yet to be completely agreed to. But whatever they are, and I can give examples if, if asked later, they should be decoupled from core repository functionalities. Uh, in my mind, for the most part, many of the services are language dependent. Every representation language you're going to use, if you're going to have consistency checking, you're going to have entailment, uh, you're going to have reasoning to do that, then those are going to be language dependent, and those should be decoupled from the core repository functionality. The OOR, another architectural principle, uh, should have no hierarchical dependencies. There is no central OOR. There's just a whole bunch of them, and they can behave independently, and as, as identified earlier, they should be able to federate and support each other in terms of the behaviors that are expected. We're supposed to be able to support arbitrary ontology representation languages, and obviously those will change over time. Uh, 
would be nice um, if it could be ontologically driven. And for those of you in academia who have a clever and creative students, if I'd like to attempt an ontologically developed OOR, that would be very useful. And of course, uh, the OOR should be platform independent because we expect multiple organizations, institutions, or people to develop their own and or host their own. On to slide nine. So, here's a quick and dirty decomposition of what we have identified as a community. And I identify this as a core. And the reason I will continue to use the word core is so that we can move forward. If you look through the communique, there are a lot of services and capabilities that people would like to have. For instance, the simplest one is mapping between ontologies. Then we get into ontology integration. And we haven't even addressed the issue of terminological differences, which many people may associate with mapping problems. However, if we want to get this moving along, we're going to have to scale that back, scope it down, and come up with something upon which we can support or allow the evolutionary development for those additional services and capabilities. So at the core, there's some persistence capability going on there. We've got to store these things somewhere. There's the metadata that we're going to have to have that's going to really facilitate the use of this. It has to be stored also. And then the issue of instance data, as I mentioned earlier, that hasn't been resolved entirely. Uh, we certainly have to store instance data if, for instance, the metadata is ontologically driven. We have to have basic DB op you know, database operations. We've got to write, read stuff, write stuff, delete stuff. Um, and again, we have to be able to get stuff back out and put stuff in. Simple put and get. Uh, we have to have the search or discovery. And for the core part, I'm saying that, or if you like the initial version, that should be based solely on metadata. You never look into the ontology itself for the core part, the initial part. Uh, the management, you have to have access controls and policies. You have to have verging and, of course, audit and access trail. I think that's minimum. Governance. Exactly how governance is defined and what it entails is not exactly clear to me. I believe some people have better notions than I do. But in particular, it at least supports the notion of submission. If someone wishes to submit an ontology to the OOR, what's the minimum amount they have to do? So there's some metadata that they will have to provide. It may already be embedded in the ontology, but at this point, I believe we have to have that as an external entity. And then the metadata is a big hole at this point, and it's crucial for having, at least as I understand it, the OOR provide the services and capabilities that are expected. And it may be the case, as I indicate here, we need different levels of metadata, similar to you know maturity levels. There may be some basic stuff and then more sophisticated stuff and then so on. Uh, Denise Bedford had a very good notion of sort of provenance information that's required in order to get the value out that's expected. And, of course, as I mentioned more than once, that the metadata is going to support the discovery and search, at least in the core part of the core notion of the OOR. Um, now, one thing you'll note is I'm not talking about web interfaces. I'm not talking about web services or anything here. Those necessarily have to be coming in somewhere. What is the user interface? The stuff's not going to sit there by itself. Uh, we haven't addressed those properly. However, given the fact that we now have the BioPortal sandbox to play with, that should certainly facilitate the identification of what those interface uh, requirements and capabilities should be. Now, do I have a slide 10? I do. Okay, slide 10. Metadata. As I pointed out in the gaps, you do not yet, that I know of, 
uh, have identified or agreed to what the metadata should be. You know it's supposed to support the provenance of information, so the authors, the credentials, any institutional support, uh, design rationale, uh, reference material that was used to create the ontology or derived from other ontologies, the ability to determine whether an ontology is suitable for a purpose or not, and then we needed to retrieve the ontologies by domain or application specificity. We'd like to use it for ontology integration, and then also for just, uh, identifying dependencies among ontologies. So that is a large gap, I, I believe. On to slide 11, and I think my last slide. Out of time. So, what do we need? As I said earlier, I think we really have to figure out what the core of the repository is upon which we can extend as needed and support that evolutionary development. What are the preliminary services we need? Well, at least we have to have syndex validation. I think that's the minimum. I believe for an initial cut, we could perhaps uh, not be concerned with consistency checking, that is, in terms of implementing it, not that it's not valuable. Uh, we haven't identified exactly what the extended services are and that couples with the roadmap. So if we have this core functionality, however it's defined, how do we then extend it to provide all of these additional services and capabilities we like? So that's my review and my quick assessment of where we are and I think what we need to do. And with that, Peter, I'll turn it over to Mark. Okay, thank you, Mark. This is Mark Mewson speaking. Uh, I have a set of slides, too, which uh, I guess Peter's is, is controlling, and you can also download them directly from the website. As Pat said, it's, it's very exciting for us. As, as, as you know, we at Stanford have been funded for a few years now from the National Institutes of Health to create, among other things, an ontology repository. And although uh, the bioportal system that you've heard me talk about in the Ontolog Forum before doesn't necessarily meet all of the the requirements that have been identified to date, I think we're well along in sort of providing a framework for what OOR should be. And we're very excited that we can take the existing version of BioPortal and make it available through the SIM3 servers so that folks can begin to play with it, can extend it, and obviously make it a much more comprehensive and valuable service, not just for uh, serving ontologies and, and, and having the repository function, but also teaching us all about how we might implement the kinds of functionality that, that the, the full OOR dream is going to provide. And before I say anything else, I, I just want to thank Benjamin Dye, who's the Chief Software Architect for NCBO, who's been working very carefully with members of our team, with Peter and members of his team, and with, with Mike Dean and, and, and others to make sure that this is now available through the SIM3 servers. Uh, I've talked about BioPortal before, and I, I, I think one of the, the issues that I'm becoming increasingly sensitive to, particularly in the OOR community, is the fact that we have called it BioPortal, mainly because our funding comes from NIH, uh, has actually made people concerned that it is really an ontology repository only for biomedical content. And I really want to emphasize that although we, we have called it BioPortal to make our funders feel comfortable, uh, there's actually nothing intrinsically biomedical about the bioportal work that we've done to date. And indeed, there are 
several instances of BioPortal that are now floating around. For example, John Graybeal and his folks at uh, the Marine Metadata Initiative are experimenting with a version of BioPortal for oceanographic ontology. And we've now made a version of BioPortal that we will be that is currently installed, and then as new releases come along, will be will be enhanced on the SIN3 site, which right now is available for inspection and soon will be available for all of us to start playing with. And so if you go to, to slide three, what you see is a screen dump of the – sorry, I missed slide one. I'm not sure why I said that. Just to confuse everyone. Back to slide one, please. Uh, is just the screen dump of the main page of BioPortal as it exists now. Uh, I realize that the URL that you would want to use to access our production version is not the URL you see in the browser here, but rather just go to bioportal.bioontology.org and you would get the, the current released version of BioPortal, which gives you essentially a table for accessing the now 150-odd ontologies that, that BioPortal serves up. Uh, and these ontologies currently are represented primarily in OWL or protege frames or the oboe format language that is used by some members of the biomedical community. Uh, we are not supporting common logic at this time. We're not supporting other frameworks, but obviously this is an area where the community can help us a lot by building appropriate extensions. And I, I think both common logic and, and sort of random XML have been uh, put forth as additional kinds of ontology representations that would be, would be valuable for our server. So what you see on the on, on the on the front page of of BioPortal is a listing of ontologies, as well as uh, if, if you will some feeds that show you where people have added notes on ontologies, where people have created mappings between ontologies, and basically gives users an idea of where the action is in terms of the community and their current uh, work on ontologies that are served up by the repository. You also see in a future version of BioPortal, you'll be able to get RSS feeds for particular ontologies that you care about and know what changes may have to be taking place or what notes may have been added or what mappings may have been added by members of the community. So that's, that's, that's slide one. Let's go to slide two just to give you a flavor of what a particular ontology looks like within, within BioPortal. Uh, this shows you uh, an, an ontology known as the Biomedical Resource Ontology, which is an ontology that folks at the National Institutes of Health have been promoting uh, in, co in collaboration with a number of the National Centers for Biomedical Computing as a repository, not a repository, but as an ontology to categorize uh, available software and other kinds of online resources that might be valuable to people in bioinformatics. And the BRO has really become a distributed effort where people at some six different sites have been making extensions to uh, this ontology over the past few months. What you see in this particular screenshot is, on the left, the standard tree browser view of what the biomedical resource ontology looks like, and on the right, a more graphical view. And we at Stanford are collaborating with Peggy Story's group at the University of Victoria, who are very interested in issues related to ontology visualization. 
And what you see in this slide is, uh, on the right-hand side, is a graphic that represents a flex representation of the ontology that can be manipulated and animated and uh, by clicking on the button that says full version in Bioportal we can go to a facility that really allows for some very sophisticated visualization of ontologies through the Bioportal in ways which I think are very useful to the community. Now I mentioned earlier that Bioportal is more than just a repository. We, we, we view it as a resource for the community of investigators who are concerned with ontology management and evolution. And if you go to slide three, what you see is, uh, again, on the left-hand side, the bro in, in the tree browser view. And on the right, you see notes. And these are notes that are really threaded discussions that represent how members of the user community are making comments on the ontology. And if you look, you see that on August 9th, David States, who at the time was at the University of Michigan, pointed out that the idea of having a class called binary executable probably didn't make sense in the top level of software. It just was a different, different category than the other elements that are represented at that level. And Peter Lister from NIH is sort of giving his justification. I mean, ultimately, there will be a decision made about where binary executable belongs. But what you see is that the notes capability of Bioportal offers these threaded discussions that basically provide design rationale for why initial designs are made in a particular way and ultimately can form the basis for uh, changes to the ontology in, in future releases that would reflect the community's conversation about where designs may be appropriate or inappropriate. And so I think, it's, 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 I think this represents something very exciting. Uh, it gives the community an opportunity to become involved not only in ontology use, uh, where they can comment on where they've used ontologies or ontologies have been successful or not successful for them, but also to provide a very explicit feedback which helps in the, in, in the development process. And so I'm, just, I just, I'm showing you these slides uh, to give you a flavor for what Bioportal offers. If we go to slide four, what you'll see are some of the features that we are going to be implementing in very uh, in, in upcoming releases of Bioportal that we expect to be released relatively soon. So something that all of us can, can look forward to, we're hoping in the next few months, will be the ability to do more explicit version comparison within Bioportal, to be able to download a diff between two successive versions and to be able to, to focus on the, the differences from one version to the next, to be able to take a look at uh, specific views of ontologies. One of the, the issues that we know is a major concern is that some of the very large ontologies that we deal with, at least in, in our domain, can have tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of concepts, and we really need a view mechanism that allows users to get a more manageable handle on being able to look at some of these large ontologies, and we'll be able to have access to those views directly through Bioportal. Where you want to have my Bioportal, or something that will be named perhaps a little bit less uh, cheesily, that will give you customized views of the ontologies in Bioportal, customized attention to the ontologies that you really care about, and uh, that won't be too hard to implement, but something that we're very, very excited about offering. Uh, and then in coordination with our own work on ontology evaluation and work that's being done in groups such as the Obo Foundry, we're trying to be able to develop metrics for ontology quality, hopefully metrics that are easily computed automatically so that we can be able to have in our metadata information that will allow users to have better assessment for ontology quality, and that's something that Natasha Noy will be talking about very shortly. 
In cooperation with our colleagues at Victoria, more, more cognitive support, better visualization, not only of the ontologies themselves, but also of the mappings between ontologies, uh, being able to understand relationships among ontologies in a more visual way, and that, that's very exciting to us. And in terms of mappings themselves, right now our mappings are pretty simple. They simply ex state that there's an existence of some mapping between one entity and one ontology and that and another. What we want to ultimately to be, to be able to do is to have very explicit types of mappings, to be able to say that a mapping is explicitly an equivalence, that a mapping uh, represents some other kind of relationship, that there might be some uncertainty associated with the mapping, those kinds of things, uh, and the ability to invoke uh, mapping algorithms automatically within BioPortal to increase uh, mapping. So we really think that the ontology uh, function is important, but I think as soon as you add the user's comments on ontologies and mappings between ontologies and ratings of ontologies, we'll actually have a much more to offer within BioPortal. Uh, and, as I, and as the last bullet on the slide says, ultimately, if we have enough people who are doing this kind of work, we'll ultimately want to have some sort of web of trust that will allow us to decide which of the contributions from the community we want to focus on, which ones of the contributions we view to be most likely to be important, which ones are most likely not to be important, so that we can actually deal with not only large numbers of ontology terms, but also large numbers of ontology annotations. And that's sort of what we're, we're seeing happening in, in BioPortal. And ultimately, we want to have all of these new features in BioPortal migrate into the OOR instance that we're setting up in the sandbox so that although there'll be a need for BioPortal to exist as a separate entity because of our NIH funding, we'll also be able to have the sandbox as a place where all the same features will be available. And not only can we test them out, but we can also extend them and play around with them. So if we go to slide five, I can sort of summarize the, the plan that Benjamin Dye of, of, of NCBO and Peter and Mike Dean and others have worked out. We're going to basically start out with a very simple deployment where uh, right now it's possible to examine the OOR instance in the sandbox, but by April, we'll have limited read-write access, and basically we decided that Mike Gruninger's students at the University of Toronto are probably in the best position to let us try it all out. So starting in April, um, Michael's students will start adding new features to the code that's in the, in the OOR uh, sandbox, and then shortly thereafter, once we assess how well that works, we'll be able to open this up to the, to the OOR community more broadly. Now, concomitantly, Mike Dean and Benjamin Dye uh, are going to be working on developing a document that will basically provide our policies on how we're going to be working together in terms of uh, open source development, who will have commit rights, how those rights will be established, who will be the trusted developers, uh, how external developers will interact. And uh, this is going to take some time to uh, evolve, and obviously Mike and Benjamin would appreciate in, uh, input from the entire OR community as they establish this document uh, so that by the time we've had a chance to debug how well this works, we'll have a very clear set of policies and guidelines and how the OOR community can play with the BioPortal code and then work very aggressively, we hope, to extend it. Uh, the code itself will be maintained on the NCBO GeForce site. One of the reasons for doing that is it's already there now, obviously, but also to facilitate uh, our ability at Stanford to continue to add the same features that go into the BioPortal release into the OOR sandbox, because we think that obviously will be important to the community. So slide, slide six, 
just says, yes, Virginia, there will be documentation. Uh, actually, Benjamin Dye has been really very, very good at creating an initial draft of documentation, which is already available uh, on the BioOntology Wiki through NCBO. Uh, Todd has, has agreed to uh, reverse engineer from our source code uh, some UML diagrams, which will be important to the community. And basically, Mike Dean, Michael Gruninger, Peter, and, and, and Benjamin Dye will all be working furiously over the next few weeks to develop uh, the kind of communications among developers that will basically provide the basis for all of us to be able to participate uh, in the work that is going to be needed to, to, to basically open up the sandbox and basically give us all an opportunity to make extensions to the code as it exists. So if we go to the next slide, which is just to remind you again what BioPortal looks like, that's uh, slide seven. Uh, BioPortal, although it carries a biomedical moniker, is really a generic uh, ontology repository that already meets many of the OR requirements. And uh, we're very excited about that through a lot of hard work on the part of SIM3. Uh, we're going to be able to make it available to the whole OOR community and really looking forward to how we can open this up in a way which will have a, a large community of developers making extensions in ways that obviously no one uh, group could do with any existing federal funding. So I'll, I'll stop there. And okay. Thank you, Mark. That was good, and yes, uh, that should be exciting since we have something to work with that works so well already. Next on the list is Natasha, and she's going to talk to us about representing metadata and NCBO bioportals. That's an interesting one, which we know is a hole in our, our work right now. Natasha. Okay. Um, hello. So uh, Peter has my slides. So what I, want, I basically wanted to follow up uh, on Mark's talk and go in a little bit more detail about um, our plans to represent metadata in BioPortal. It's actually, caveat, it's not the way BioPortal handles metadata right now, but we're literally, like, as we speak, in the process of transitioning to the, um, uh, to the representation that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, so that's slide one. It's just the title. Peter, could you advance to the next slide, please? Thank you. So when we talk about metadata, um, we're basically thinking of metadata rather broadly, and that includes ontology metadata that Todd was mentioning earlier, you know, pertinent information about the ontology itself, uh, provided by the authors, but, but also uh, the reviews on the ontology, so the information provided by the reviewers, uh, notes, um, ontology mappings, we basically view them as metadata as well. Then there's metadata on the mappings, um, so as I mentioned, ontology reviews, and basically all the other information that's needed to run via portal, such as the user information, um, we also enable one. We also enable users to describe their projects, ontology-based projects, um, as a way of providing context for their reviews. So that's also metadata. So you could say, you know, I have this project that does this and this, and I'm using these ontologies, and that's how well they have worked. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so. Understandably, we use ontologies and ontology instances to represent metadata. I believe these are the instances that were mentioned earlier as the instances that are needed for the infrastructure of uh, running the OR. Um, so essentially what we're doing, we're taking several existing uh, uh, um, 
ontologies for representing various parts of metadata that we need and then extending it. That includes the ontology metadata vocabulary, OMV, that has been mentioned several times on various OR calls and um, ontolog calls, as well as the protege uh, ontology for representing changes and annotations, which in this context annotations are just the notes that Mark was showing earlier. Uh, there is a, on the slide, there is a um, link to the wiki page that describes everything I'm talking about today in great detail, but it's very much work in progress. Uh, so we welcome feedback, and we basically will be updating those pages in terms of as we're implementing things. Um, next slide, please. Thank you. So, 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 so um, this is more of the diagram of how we represent the metadata. So at the top, there is this what we call the bar portal metadata ontology that is uh, available in bar portal. So if you go to bar portal, it's actually there. We should probably also unload it, upload it to OR since it uh, you know, describes the way we represent metadata. Um, so it imports, uh, it's an OWL ontology, so it uses imports to import OMV and the protege changes ontology and the protege mappings ontology. Um, and then, so that's kind of the top layer. And then, um, the way we're implementing it, there's essentially what we call a knowledge base, which are instances of all these classes um, that um, represent it kind of in the same back end, but they're not directly visible um, uh, to those who are browsing Bioportal, but they're available to REST services, and they drive all the interface for displaying metadata, uh, notes and reviews and ratings and things like that. Um, uh, so there's an example there. So, for example, you know, you have an, an instance that represents a review um, that, put, that is a review in a particular version of an ontology. So there's a link uh, there, um, that, and, and, the, and these instances are instances of the classes in Bioportal Metadata Ontology. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so to give you a little bit more of a flavor of how we represent, so for each ontology, in terms of the instances, so for uh, I'm getting kind of more technical here. So for each ontology, we have something that we call virtual ontology, which is basically just says this is, for example, the foundational model of anatomy, and then it points to the metadata instances describing each of the versions um, of this particular ontology. In this case, of the FMA, um, including the it shows it points to what the current version is. We'll also use the same mechanism to represent ontology views, which are essentially subsets of ontology. So, for example, our colleagues at the University of Washington have created a subset of FMA for representing a liver and its parts in the context of radiology. So we represent this as um, just another ontology in BioPortal, and then as part of the metadata, we say, well, this is actually a view on the particular version of the FMA. And the wiki page that I pointed, I showed earlier has the details of, of that. Um, next slide, please. Uh, so the same for mappings. I mentioned that we're treating mapping as metadata. So we have a mapping ontology that uh, Protege and its prompt plugin use, where, where um, essentially it's actually a very simple ontology that um, where the main class is a one-to-one -one mapping between an entity in one ontology and an entity in another ontology. Um, and then the metadata that describes the mapping. And so what we have, again, on the inf uh, in, in the knowledge base, in the instances, are specific mappings between, for example, hard in FMA ontology and hard in the Galen ontology, and then information on who created the mapping and in what context. 
And then in the next slide, uh, some more details on the types of uh, uh, metadata for the mappings. Next slide, please. Uh, so things like the mapping relationship itself, Mark has mentioned that right now it's essentially just related, um, but um, it could be so, so we're uh, we are think we will expand the set of relationships that so could be you know broad and narrow equivalent related similar etc. Uh, provenance who created the mapping and when and for what purpose uh, as on everything else in bar portal there can be discussions and comments so if you browse the sandbox instance or the bar portal the sandbox or instance of bar portal you will see that people can put notes on the mappings uh, you know the some mappings are valid only in particular application context. They may depend on other mappings, as well as metadata such as, you know, this mapping was created by such and such algorithm and maybe configuration parameters. Um, next slide. Uh, so, so, so basically that was a brief overview uh, of, of uh, how we represent, um, uh, what meant to represent the metadata in BioBotl, and so that will transition to that OR instance in the sandbox. That's, I think, in the, the URL is in the chat session. I know Mike will talk more about it. Uh, so essentially, we we believe that using ontology to represent metadata actually facilitates evolution. One of the things we're looking at is evolution and, and also customization, uh, because, for example, um, other installation of Viaportal may, may want to have a somewhat different metadata. So we're trying to write the code in a way that, except for the you know top-level classes, you can actually extend metadata and you can just add, for example, new properties to your metadata ontology that's driving your Viaportal installation. And those uh, those metadata fields will appear, for example, when an author submits a new ontology. So that uh, having it being driven by an ontology facilitates that type of customization. Um, and yes, we're trying to create documentation of how you would customize, customize it. Um, so we we'll also use the Protege plugin to generate the APIs automatically for those of you who will be looking at the code uh, from the metadata ontology, uh, which basically saves a lot of grunt work and makes uh, things more maintainable. Um, and again, you know, components of this can be more easily reused and extended in different installations and customized. And then the last slide, uh, some of the main challenges that we're looking at, uh, well, the obvious one is how to deal with ontology evolution, because, for example, if you think about a metadata describing a particular version, uh, as we move to a new version of the ontology, essentially any part of that metadata can change. And so each ontology version is represented as a separate metadata instance, um, and we just kind of automatically migrate it and let the authors change everything. Uh, for things like nodes, for example, so if you think, if you go back to the example that Mark gave earlier when people were discussing a particular class and so the nodes had a decided discussion, uh, in some cases this discussion is still valid in newer versions and some it isn't. So the approach that we're taking now is we will still, if, as you're moving to the new version of the ontology, we will still display the nodes and the reviews and the mappings that were created for the previous versions. But we don't do it currently, but what we plan to is we'll have certain cues there saying that, you know, this was created for, an, or this mapping or this node was created for the earlier version of the ontology. We have that information, we just don't expose it in the user interface as of now. Um, and then one of the things we're trying to do, and actually one of the reasons we're trying to, say, for, we're using OMV, for example, is um, so we'll have 
uh, to be able to exchange this metadata. So we'll have talks earlier, uh, later in, on this call, for example, on, from the NEON folks so, um, who are also using OMV. So the hope is that we can actually exchange that metadata more easily uh, by using some shared representation. Um, and that was my last slide. Thank you, Natasha. That was very exciting to hear that you're using ontologically driven development. That will certainly make the evolutionary process a lot easier. Uh, one item I forgot to mention after Mark's talk that could facilitate the uh, extension of the work that's already been done by BioPortal and perhaps some of the other efforts is uh, a capability provided by IHMC, the Institute for Human Machine Cognition. They have an ontologically driven policy enforcement uh, mechanism that they developed uh, several years ago and probably believe have been extending it. Perhaps we could uh, conjole them to allow us to use that free of charge, if there is any in the first place. So without further ado, Mike Dean, and he's going to tell us about aligning the OOR software and architecture for collaboration. So Michael, are you ready? Okay, uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Todd. Okay. Uh, Peter, can you go on to slide two? Okay, I'd like to start by um, uh, thanking a lot of people who um, have contributed to OR uh, both recently, uh, uh, in the past, and uh, uh, in the near future um, as well. So why don't we go on to the next slide? Slide three. Uh, so I'm uh, just beginning to learn about the uh, internals of BioPortal. Uh, the um, uh, figure on the uh, left is one of those that uh, Benjamin provided on the uh, uh, NCO uh, uh, documentation page. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I'm, uh, I think it's a, really an excellent platform for uh, uh, further development of OOR and uh, you know, provides a nice modular architecture uh, that um, you know, I think is compatible uh, at least at a conceptual level with some of the ideas that I had sketched out earlier uh, in terms of a uh, plug-and-play architecture for value-added features where uh, uh, developers really could um, vote with their code uh, in uh, uh, providing additional capabilities uh, for the OR. So I'm really you know, excited about the, uh, um, uh, the foundation that we have and, and uh, really a jump start in terms of uh, uh, getting uh, OR going as well as the experience in, uh, in managing uh, an existing uh, repository. Uh, moving on to slide um, uh, five. I'm sorry, slide four. Um, uh, you know, as Mark said, you know, I think there's a uh, tremendous opportunity, particularly in addressing some of the capabilities that uh, uh, haven't been addressed uh, by BioPortal. Uh, and um, uh, I think some of that can actually be done uh, initially through layered uh, extensions, uh, uh, some that, uh, you know, use or wrap some of the existing uh, uh, BioPortal REST APIs, uh, also some federation capabilities between uh, multiple uh, BioPortal NOR instances and uh, um, and also potentially other uh, repositories. Um, I think uh, you know some other uh, changes that uh, you know will also be very valuable would probably require a little bit more uh, internal uh, 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 changes. You know, our support for additional languages, uh, common logic, as you mentioned, uh, uh, simple vocabularies using uh, uh, SCOS you know, is another possibility. Uh, and, uh, you know, perhaps also things like uh, gatekeeping functions for uh, more curated collections um, of ontologies. Uh, slide five. Um, so I actually get the uh, privilege of introducing the uh, first uh, OR sandbox instance, uh, which uh, appeared uh, last night uh, at uh, oor01.sim3.net. Uh, 
Uh, so uh, I logged in and uh, uh, you know, created a uh, account and actually submitted a couple widely used RDF vocabularies uh, last night as examples. And the screenshot here basically shows uh, uh, what's up um, on that um, uh, machine at uh, uh, at this point. Um, there's a plan to reboot the machine, uh, uh, the server, you know, shortly after this telecon, but. Uh, uh, after that, I would uh, you know, certainly encourage uh, folks to uh, to get on and try it out. And I'd like to uh, again uh, acknowledge uh, a lot of people who uh, uh, have been working hard in the last uh, week or so to uh, to make this happen. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you, Mike. One amendment. Uh, Benjamin did notice that people may be hitting that server shortly after this panel discussion. So we're not going to reboot until maybe after work tomorrow. So feel free to jump into the machine. Great. That's even better. Thank you, Michael. That was short. Guess we'll be able to stay on schedule now. Next up is going to be Paul, whose last time I can't pronounce. Excuse me, Paul. If you can train me later, I'd appreciate it. And Andreas from Derry in Galway. They're going to talk about from OntoSelect towards OntoSelect SWSE. Paul, Andreas, are you ready? Yeah, hi. Thanks. Thank you. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, next uh, slide two. Is that the outline of the talk? Uh, I will very, I try to very briefly uh, recap uh, OntoSelect uh, because it was presented uh, at, the, at the last uh, panel. Um, and then I will switch to uh, our plans for sort of moving on to select uh, from the FKR where I was before in Germany. Now I'm at Derry in Galway, uh, which allows me to uh, build on work that was going on here, and that's why Andreas is here. Uh, Andreas has been working the last couple of years on building a, a more general semantic web search engine, so we pronounced it Swizzy. And uh, on to select could be an instance of Swizzy specifically focused on ontology, uh, 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 crawling, search, and indexing, and retrieval. Um, and then, so Andreas will talk about that and also about some initial experiments on uh, on doing that. So next slide. Uh, so on the select, uh, basically, uh, you can uh, go there. It's still DFGR, the original version. Uh, so we monitor the web for ontologies. We harvest ontologies. We don't really crawl them, so that would be a new thing, sort of really crawling them. Um, so we basically uh, send out Google uh, queries to find demo RDFS and all files. These are uh, indexed. We can uh, we allow browsing and searching. We index uh, class of properties, but also this uh, onto select has also always been um, the main target has been to um, to make something um, a service for finding ontologies specifically in the context of natural language processing also. So we, we have a multilingual uh, focus also. Yeah, and then we keep statistics. So next slide. So you have a screenshot of browsing the ontologies. Uh, so this uh, can be ranked uh, according to uh, number of labels, uh, number of classes, number of properties, but also uh, a score on uh, how uh, connected these uh, ontologies are. So there's a... a Sort of a page rank algorithm to um, to uh, compute a score of um, of connectedness. Okay, so as I said, I tried to go briefly. So next slide. Ontology search. So uh, we have a simple uh, ontology search based on on titles. So you give a, 
a keyword like genetics in the example here, and you get, based on the title, you get something like pharmacogenetics ontology, but uh, we um, this is a bit restricted, so we also allow something much more extensive, namely uh, treating uh, a keyword as a topic which connects to uh, Wikipedia. Now that's the next slide. So now we get genetics as a Wikipedia topic. This is a, a web page, of course, and a text about genetics from which we can extract uh, keywords. And this is done uh, in real time online uh, when you uh, use this service. So I go to the next slide. And we extract uh, keywords, uh, so from this page, something like inheritance, trait, organism, gene, or also general things like height. Or, and uh, so from this, we build an extended uh, uh, query that is then matched on the ontoselect, uh, yeah, let's say, database ontology repository. And uh, according to some scores, I won't go into details, uh, we get a ranked list of the best fitting ontologies for that, uh, for that query document. So in this case, uh, ranked highest is NCI Oncology Ontology. And next to that, you, you see, for instance, the matching uh, terms. Next slide. So we keep statistics. Uh, I just highlight one or two things. So multilinguality is uh, of interest to us specifically also. So how many ontologies have labels in different languages? So most of that is still uh, English. Uh, next slide. Yeah, so there's another thing. We uh, keep track of how often class names that we basically see as, as, as words in a language, how often uh, uh, have they been defined in different ontologies. So that's sort of the ambiguity of, uh, of, of words in a language, and we hope to, uh, to sort of use this, exploit this, again, in the ontology alignment work that we also hope to be working on more uh, now here at Derry. Um, and I will think, yeah, so the next slide I will now uh, go over to, to Andreas, who will talk about the Swissy work. Yes, hello. Um, I've been mostly concerned in my work with um, linked data from the web, so um, trying to make sense out of the information that is being published online in RDF and OWL and these type of things. So what you see here is a screenshot of a web crawl that we did um, six degrees from Tim Berners-Lee. So we started at Tim Berners-Lee's homepage and crawled um, six hops from there. Um, what you see is a linked, uh, ranked list of classes. So the first um, class is person, the most popular. Next one would be channel. The other one would be RDF sequence and RSS item. And you also see a ranked list of the instances of these classes. Um, when you operate on web data, Ranking is really important to uh, sort of um, clean up um, the, the mess that is that is out there uh, when thousands or millions of people publish data, basically. Um, next slide. This is the architecture. Um, it's a distributed shared nothing architecture. can run on multiple servers and scales quite well to billions of triples. So you, I, I go through the... Um, architecture diagram from left to right. So we start at the linked data, which is basically RDF files. Um, a crawler makes um, HTTP requests, um, puts that into a big um, RDF file, and then um, the reasoner materializes the inferences. We curtail some of the inferences 
to uh, keep the size of the uh, materialized data manageable. Um, you see a lot of things like people uh, superclass other people's classes. So if you naively do reasoning on web data, you get an, an explosion. So we curtail some of that, um, feed it into an indexer, which creates a keyword and structure index, uh, which then the query processor can um, evaluate queries over. Um, in parallel, the ranker generates page rank style uh, rankings for all of the identifiers in the data and uh, feeds that into the query processor. And finally, the user interface is there uh, where people can then search and browse and navigate um, the integrated data. What we did um, was two experiments. Um, one was to use the onto-select me methodology, which is basically querying Google for RDFS and DAML and OWL files. Um, and what you see here is then the content page, uh, where you see that the top class is um, OWL class. Then uh, the next one would be um, ontology. So you see a list of the ontology instances that are in there. So starting with OWL thing, which is an error, somebody put a statement in there saying that our thing is of type ontology. Um, yeah, this type of stuff happens if you deal with this graphy web data. Next one would be Swirl, Dublin Core, and then um, OWLS um, ontologies. On to the next slide. Um, okay, yeah. I mentioned the experiment, uh, the onto-select experiment already. So the seed set was from Google and Yahoo. We had in total 27,000 data sources, which resulted into 6.5 million RDF statements. For the web experiment, uh, we did that six degrees from Tim Berners-Lee crawl. Uh, we got 100,000 data sources, which include instance data and ontologies, and uh, which yields roughly 12 million statements. So um, the ranked list of ontologies, I briefly mentioned that already. Uh, next slide, the ranked list of um, ontologies from the web, um, which includes the instance data. So you see FOF is the um, mostly used ontology in that area. Next is RDF Schema, Daml Oil, um, the Web Owl Ontology, and then um, a language, on, uh, a country ontology, basically. Um, in this interface, what you also can do is you can do faceted browsing, so you could restrict um, the list that you see by authors, for example, or organizations that would have published this um, ontology information. Um, so, in conclusion, um, this WYSI framework that we have built facilitates web data experiments so we can very rapidly um, crawl and index and analyze web data. Um, taking into account the real-world instance usage improves the ontology ranking, um, which you saw the difference between the seed crawl from Google and Yahoo and the, the real web crawl. Um, the web data is noisy, so the more data providers you have, the more noise you get, and the system has to somehow deal with that. Um, what also happens is that um, that there is dubious data providers um, that publish data which pollutes the data set, so I think uh, it would be good to have in an ontology repository a way of blacklisting um, or rate ontologies to um, remove them from the view of the of the users. All right, that was my our presentation. Um, on to the next. Thank you, Paul and Andreas. That's quite interesting. And we know the web has a lot of noise. However, what what you just suggested there will be a valuable service for the OOR, i.e., in terms of ranking. If people are trying to promulgate some notion that really isn't supported by evidence, 
then this is a way that we could use that to verify that or discount it. But in addition, I, I, it occurred to me that perhaps your Swizzy could be used in a more restrictive sense for the part of the ontological mapping issue, or if you like, the terminological mapping confusions that occur. But we can address that at another time. So thank you for that presentation, letting us know what you're doing and the fact that you're now in, in, in Galloway. Next up, we're going to hear about NEON and its support for sharing and reusing ontologies and other related things uh, by Matthew Jaquin from Open University in the UK. Matthew, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, I hope everybody is able to see my slides. I unfortunately cannot see the, the share screen, so I hope it will go, it will go okay. I'm now in the title slides, and I have quite some things to say, so I will probably forget about half of them, and I will try to get as fast as possible so you don't have to uh, get bored listening to me for too long. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to very quickly talk about some of the NEON components. So NEON is um, a European project, and if you go on to slide two, the <coughs> there is, a, I mean, a very brief summary of what it is about. And the main element is that we want to enable the development of a new sort of applications, applications that truly exploit what the semantic web is, what is currently the content of the semantic web, what ontologies has been, uh, what sort of ontologies have been put online, and to this sort of application that can dynamically uh, retrieve the relevant semantic resources for their particular needs and combine several heterogeneous ontologies. So obviously there are many challenges in doing that. And uh, I can mention heterogeneity. Uh, Andreas just talked about, you know, different views and uh, the knowledge provider would uh, pollute in some way the data set. Uh, there is obviously the scale of uh, of reusing, uh, reusing ontologies and, uh, and data coming from the web. Um, there is the evolution of the, the ontologies and the related metadata, distributed development of ontologies, collaboration, all these sort of aspects. Um, so to tackle these sort of challenges, uh, Neon intend to, to provide key outcomes, key pro products. The main one being, uh, the, main, the most concrete one being the Neon Toolkit, which is a complete environment for ontology lifecycle management. Uh, we'll talk a tiny bit about that later. But we, the Neon Toolkit is actually based on a reference architecture for building semantic web applications, which is made of various components, which uh, <coughs> each fulfills some particular needs for semantic web applications. So we get into more detail about specific components that can be used. Uh, we also uh, putting a lot of effort on community building and you know, trying to gather feedbacks and uh, and uh, collaboration with different. I mean with the community of ontology developers and semantic web application developers. And uh, we are in particular looking at three quite large-scale and concrete case studies in two different domains, namely uh, the pharmaceutical sector and uh, the fisheries uh, stock management sector. Uh, this case study is led by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. So getting on to slide three, you can see one of the worst pictures the Neon project has ever, uh, has ever produced, which is almost unreadable. But uh, the, the idea of this picture is to show that the Neon architecture is actually 
a component architecture, something that is meant to be uh, extend, extended and that is meant to be flexible. Uh, and within this architecture, we are developing a number of components, and the one I highlighted in red are the one that I think makes sense and are useful, useful for an ontology repository. Uh, you can see a registry, you can see repository, you can see querying components, collaborative editing, ontology mapping, browsing and visualization, evaluation, um, services, and browsers. Uh, I will particularly, in particular, if you click, there is an animation here. Uh, I will talk about four of these components, I mean, four of the implementation of such components uh, a bit in more detail. And if you click again, um, I will not talk about it, but uh, one of the things is that each of these components are actually have plugins associated to them for the Neon Toolkit, so for the environment we are developing, which means not only that they are reusable components, things you can integrate easily into applications, into systems, but also that they directly integrate into the ontology building environment, meaning that they directly support the life cycle of ontologies within the environment where, where it is developed. So on to slide four, a very quick overview of the NEON toolkit. So it's a reference implementation of the NEON architecture. So the goal is to support ontology engineering and management and in particular to, to be uh, to put a particular effort on supporting the complete ontology life cycle from requirement analysis to uh, maintenance and evolution. Uh, it supports different languages and it uh, it puts a focus on network ontologies, which are ontologies uh, related with each other through uh, as being modules or because they uh, they share mappings or because there are different versions of each other and uh, all these sort of things. So it's built on the Eclipse Path platform, and like everything that is not in, in Neon, it's meant to be extended by, by the community. It's an open source platform, and, uh, and any developer can easily add any sort of uh, new plugin for it to support particular needs. But this presentation is not really about the Neon Toolkit. I wanted to focus on some of the components that really make sense for ontology repositories, and one of them which is kind of the obvious one, is the Oyster um, registry system. So basically, Oyster is, is a peer-to-peer -peer system to share, for, to, to help ontology developers sharing their ontologies in a community. So it's the interesting part is that it's a peer-to-peer -to -peer system, meaning that you have access of, in a, of, to an whole network of uh, people sharing ontologies, and uh, in a distributed architecture when you don't actually need any uh, any centralized server and any sort of um, of uh, complex control. Uh, yes? Excuse me, this is Todd. Which slide are you on? Uh, I'm on slide five. Oh, sorry, I forgot to say that. Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, anyway, slide five doesn't say much that uh, I don't say. Uh, one... Other interesting part of Oyster is, uh, as Natasha and several others mentioned before, it's based on the OMV metadata vocabulary, which is actually an ontology for uh, metadata on ontologies. And one of the interesting parts of being based on an ontology is, well, first, we can reuse the whole ontology infrastructure to uh, manage this metadata, but also that it is extensible. 
So there is a core to OMV which is well supported and well maintained and many, many different extensions including extension to get metadata on mappings, extension for metadata on reviews on ontologies, extension for metadata on uh, ontology modules, the sub-part of ontologies. And, um, and all this is naturally supported by the infrastructure of Oyster as extension of uh, OMV in the whole language. The other, uh, one of the other components which is really important in my opinion for an ontology repository and described on slide six, uh, is Watson. So I, I already described quite a lot of Watson in a previous call of the, of, uh, OR and ontologues, so I, I won't get into too much detail. The idea of Watson is, uh, if you look at it roughly, it's an ontology search engine. So that means it crawl and collect and, uh, index ontologies and RDF data, uh, compute and extract a number of metadata about them. Uh, and in, in, in some way very similarly to what Swizzy and OntoSelect do. One of the important parts, uh, one of the important focus we put for Watson is that it, we don't mean for it to be a user interface. We don't mean for it to be a system exclusively for uh, human users. We the goal is to support applications, application development, to support uh, ontology de uh, application developers in finding, uh, exploring, and exploiting ontologies that are on the web, meaning that it provides a very complete and high-level API to actually um, locate ontologies, find them, find elements in ontologies, explore that, their content, and explore their metadata, and uh, and make use of this information directly in applications without needing additional infrastructure. Um, so other components, uh, on site seven, sorry, other components, uh, we develop in Neon include the alignment server. Uh, the alignment server is, an, is developed in RIA in France and is, um, is a sort of online repository for alignments. So it stores and manages alignment online. It, uh, it allows users to retrieve and manipulate these alignments, to evaluate them according to gold standard and particular measures, uh, but also, importantly, to produce alignments with an extensible set of matching techniques. So you can directly find, store, and retrieve and produce alignments using this system. And it's based on the alignment API, uh, which is quite used uh, in the in the alignment community. Uh, another system is called TSORS, which is an open rating system for ontologies. So basically, it's a system to provide reviews and rating on ontologies. One interesting particularity of this system is that it enables reviews on different properties of ontologies, different characteristics. You can see here one of the instance of ORS that we use uh, for which we have decided that reusability, correctness, complexity, coverage, and modeling were three of the characteristics we did actually want to uh, to get evaluated. But in addition to that, once reviews have been produced, user can, uh, can express trust and distrust statements on particular reviews, meaning they have this question, which is uh, quite common now, uh, do you think this, did you find this review useful? Or did you find, do you think this review is actually correct? Is a good one? Is something that interests you? 
the <laughs> the interesting thing in doing that is that by uh, pro providing reviews and providing stress statement on reviews, the user can obtain customized ontology ranking mechanism. So, meaning that if we combine this with Watson, we can get ontology ranking mechanism that are based that is based on uh, on the the opinion the user has expressed on different ontologies and the user and the opinion he has, he has expressed on uh, reviews on ontologies, building a complete trust network from the user to different other users and to reviews from ontologies. So getting customized results. So if I would stop here, I could say that I presented four components that uh, I think makes, makes a lot of sense uh, and should be, could be considered in the in the implementation of the OR architecture, as they provide different elements of um, uh, that are required for this architecture. Uh, but I won't stop here. Uh, if you go into slide eight, you can see that not only we add the different uh, the different components, but we are currently into uh, putting the effort to try to act, to integrate these different these components into one common system that will help users in publishing, sharing, and reusing their ontologies. So one of the important things here uh, is that, yeah, we, we try to adopt this, this sort of uh, integrated, loosely integrated uh, development, meaning that each of the components we integrate, which are currently the open rating system, the Watson engine, uh, Oyster, and the alignment server, which I described uh, are all distributed in our in our architecture and uh, quite uh, integrated through a, a sort of federating interface. One other important element is that uh, in the same way I said for Watson, I mean, the, the goal of the NEON uh, project is to support the development of new applications. And one thing that uh, we really want to focus on is uh, the issue that currently if somebody wants to develop um, a complete semantic web application, he will have to collect all, all the ontologies, put it in a, uh, an heavy infrastructure based on triple store, based on query mechanism, uh, eventually put mappings and alignments between that, put a reasoner, uh, integrate metadata, and eventually try to find other ontologies to to, to link with that. Uh, what we want to provide with Cupboard, which is the name of the, uh, of the system we are developing, is a complete online environment so that um, this task is made easier. Meaning you can submit ontologies, you can create your own ontology space, which includes alignment, which includes rating from other users eventually, which includes metadata, and a federated API uh, integrating the Watson API, uh, APIs for manipulating Oyster desc OMV descriptions, the alignment API and APIs to get reviews and rating from systems so that you have a complete environment and a complete infrastructure, a virtual infrastructure for you to uh, work with and create new things from a bunch of ontologies. So if you go on to slide nine, it's a very uh, non-impressive uh, screenshot of the current state of, uh, of this system. It currently includes the Watson um, 
the Watson engine to search into the content of ontology and browse it. It includes OMV to edit and retrieve metadata and search on metadata. It includes uh, an instance, uh, an implementation of the open rating system to review and retrieve views on the metadata. We still have to implement the customized ranking mechanism and uh, it will soon include um, the alignment server to uh, produce, find, manage, and evaluate uh, alignments between ontologies. So I get on to the last slide, slide 10. Um, just to conclude very quickly, uh, so I presented these different sort of components and I've been very quick in presenting them, and actually there are quite a lot of other components within the which could be very useful in developing an ontology repository, including visualization and um, and management mechanism, versioning mechanism, all these sort of things. Uh, now, I wanted to conclude on uh, a sort of different tone, which is I, I focus a lot on the development and on integrating uh, technologies, but one of the things I think is that the nice development and interface are not enough to build a nice ontology repository, which means we need to be able to encourage people to share their ontologies, ontology designers to actually put them in one or a distributed ontology repository or an ontology repository or different ontology repositories that could work together. Um, we need to attract users in actually using these repositories and actually making, I mean, being better than Google in finding ontologies will be kind of the, the first step uh, and providing all the features that, so that it makes sense to go to this particular place for a user to, uh, to find and reuse ontologies. And, um, and of course, one of the important parts of uh, such initiative, in my opinion, is to be able to obtain quality information of ontologies, know exactly, Mark was mentioning it, I think, uh, know which ontologies seem to be uh, important, seem to be well, uh, uh, nicely modeled, and which one may not be suitable for particular applications or may not be completely uh, well designed. And that can only be done through feedback from the community and review quality and how to to get to obtain these, uh, this quality information is still a big issue in my opinion. So, well, Obvious elements of solution include providing a good infrastructure, something that really facilitates the exploitation of ontologies and their deployment and uh, their publication so that it becomes so easy that it's, it, it becomes the obvious solution for uh, this sort of problem. And also to provide sort of web to life features like reviews for tagging the bioportal uh, bio portal system seem to be quite in advance, uh, advance for that. Uh, we're also looking at uh, ways to automatically uh, automatically collect some form of feedback from the from the users, like um, log uh, every time a user will reuse an element of another ontology within the Neon Toolkit and collect all this information to to kind of compute quality information and popularity information about ontologies. There, are, there is probably a lot more to do on this particular aspect of trying to build a community of ontology developers willing to use uh, an ontology re uh, repository. So I think that's my last slide. Yes, it is. Um, so I'm done here. Thank you, Matthew.
Um, actually, that brings up a, a question of ignorance on my part, or perhaps naivety. I should have asked uh, Paul and Andreas also. Given the wealth of capabilities that currently exist that can be used, reused, exploited, or learned from, what are the uh, intellectual property issues associated with either Neon or OntoSelect or OntoSelect Swizzy? Swazi, Swizzy. Uh, do you mean the intellectual properties on the ontology we provide or on the... Uh, on the various components that you were talking about, uh, Oyster, Watson, and so on. Is yes. it open source? Can anyone use it? Or uh, Currently, not all the components are open source, but this is, the aim is to get everything open source. So Oyster, I think, is already open source. Uh, the alignment server is, is open source. The open rating system is not, but uh, I mean, it's... Has not, it does not be decided what sort of license it should apply. And for the Watson engine, uh, it's still in discussion, but it, sh it should become open source at some point. The goal, f the, our goal for the cupboard system is actually to become an open source package that anybody could, uh, install in, uh, and could create a new server anywhere, a bit like, uh, a bit like what the BioPortal is doing. Yes, uh I have to remind everybody that during our discussions at the summit in 2008, there was uh, different views as to which communities may or may not use the um, Open Ontology repository. And I pointed out that commercial concerns would certainly like to have a standard mechanism for uh, making use of ontologies in their own organizations or institutions. This applies to both uh, governmental and commercial institutes. Now, what we've heard is from OntoSelect and from Neon is that they have a focus also on the web. So we have to keep in mind that there's going to be multiple communities that would want to use this and not all of those purposes or goals are aligned. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Matthew. We now have a wealth of capabilities and information that we're going to have to sort through to figure out what we can use, use directly, what has the best ideas, whose ideas we can improve on, and so on. And that's going to be an interesting challenge in itself. So the next person to speak is going to be Ken Baklowski from Northeastern University, who's going to tell us about multilingual and other considerations for the OOR implementation. So, Ken, if you're ready. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm going to be giving a brief uh, introduction to a couple of projects that have uh, just recently started and uh, some considerations that uh, have arisen already in these projects that I think are relevant to the OR. One of these projects is, in fact, an NIH grant that uh, whose, whose proposal explicitly mentioned the OOR as uh, one of its uh, one of its aims to uh, to be involved with the OOR. So, uh, but before I get started with that, I'd like to make a, a, a remark that uh, the um, what Matthew said at, at the end of his talk just now about encouraging people to share their ontologies is certainly quite relevant to uh, to a lot of what what I do, at least, and I'm sure with other people as well. Um, a lot of what uh, goes on in these communities is ontology building, whether they realize it or not. I mean, uh, the, the question of aligning terminology is, is something that one hears again and again. In fact. Just by chance this afternoon, uh, just before this, uh, the meeting, I was at a faculty meeting where the vice provost for research at my, uh, my institution, 
proclaimed that uh, interdisciplinary research is extremely important and the main problem that we face in, inter inter in interdisciplinary research is aligning terminology among the different uh, domains. So he, he didn't think of it as being ontology, uh, it, that these were ontologies, but in fact that's what's going on. And something like the OOR um, I think would be extremely important in a lot of these domains uh, and a lot of interdisciplinary research. Now, in the areas that I'm working on, looking on page uh, slide two. Hey, Ken? Yes? Excuse me, this is Todd. Yes? Your audio is fading in and out. Really? Yes. Oh, uh, I'll try to keep keep it going. Thank you. Anyway, um, can you hear me now? Hello? Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're okay. Uh, continue. Yes. Please. Okay. The level kept going up and down. Oh, okay. Well, I'll try to make sure that it stays steady. Thank you. Uh, so the basic background behind these, these two projects is that uh, you have data sources that span regional and international boundary. You have uh, different natural languages uh, as well as regional differences. And, uh, and different domains, uh, different communities will use uh, words in different ways. And uh, it very often happens that exact equivalences are not always available. Another important aspect is that terminology evolves over time, and one must take into account not only um, these differences um, at one time, but also the differences um, over over spans of times that can be over several centuries. Uh, another one that uh, came up in the uh, in one of the projects that I'm going to talk about in a moment is that. Uh, terminology is often closely tied with legal requirements and policies, and uh, so some kind of policy enforcement, as, I've, as we've heard today, would certainly be important in uh, uh, in, in any OOR and, and uses of it. So the, one of the projects, uh, slide three, is uh, biobanking. It's uh, repositories of biological materials. These are um, can be taken from humans or animals. Um, the uh, things like biopsies and uh, blood samples. Uh, these have associated clinical information, and I've listed a number of the kinds of uh, the kinds of information that occur there: the uh, where it came from, what type of sample it was, genotype information, medical record information, um, the process used to obtain the sample, which can vary a great deal even when you use the same word for the sample, and uh, policies, of course, that are, have, uh, uh, that are very important uh, for uh, how you use the sample, and the donor uh, can also specify restrictions on this. The, uh, this is joint work uh, with uh, Jan-Erik Litten at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Uh, a lot of these uh, kinds of uh, information, I think, are already available in ontologies, um, and we hope to reuse as much as possible those ontologies that are, are out there, and of course the, uh, the OOR should make this possible. One of these I, I would like to mention in particular is the, the policy, excuse me, the process used to obtain the sample is very similar to uh, some work that uh, Natasha did in her thesis many years ago. Um, on slide four, um, another project concerns disease reports. Uh, 
of course, diseases do not respect nat national boundaries, and that means that you have to take into consideration, uh, you know, different terminology and different languages across these boundaries. Um, and the uh, terminology uh, varies not just by region but also by time. And so we, we have uh, diseases, species, and habitats. Species in particular, there's a long literature um, for this that goes back for centuries, and we want to make it, be able to make use of that. But the, uh, the meaning of a different of a term for a species can change over time. So this isn't quite the same as saying that you have a version of an ontology, because here we're looking at a time very far in the past, and uh, one must take into consideration all of those uh, variations. This is joint work with Neil Sarkar at the University of Vermont. Um, last slide. Uh, just mention a kind of summary of the things that we would like from a repository is to have the ability to do a kind of seamless integration of multiple languages as well as regional and domain variations um, and as well as integration of terminology that changes over time. Um, we'd like to be able to do this both in a multilingual, in a multilingual environment with query capability. Uh, and that means we'd like to have a really good user interface for suggestions and feedback from the community, and not just people who are ontology developers, but just ordinary people who just want to grapple with um, variations in terminology. And uh, finally, the, uh, there definite, there's a definite requir requirement for uh, policy checking, uh, I should say checking of requirements and checking of policy. Um, for uh, the use of any kind of instance data that would be in a repository. Okay, so, um, so that should be all. That's all I'm talking about today. Well, thank you, Ken. Uh, some of those issues you brought up are going to be quite interesting because, as we know, if you follow the forum, there's lots of differences of opinions as opposed to terminology and ontology from the formalist perspective, from the socialist perspective, and as one of the, I think we call it the complementary goal of the OOR, a identification and clear delineation between those two communities hopefully will be uh, aided, and then the, the merging or unification of the differences can be overcome at some point by the OOR. Hmm, maybe that's a little too uh, much of a stretch. But in any case, the issues of terminology we know are all crucial. They keep popping up all the time, causing trouble. And the other issue that you keep bringing, that, or you, you identified, the legal and policy checking issues, is something that was addressed during the ontology summit in terms of intellectual property rights and so on. And as I mentioned earlier, we do expect that the OOR will have instances behind corporate or governmental firewalls and then the public ones. And the public ones may well support uh, the very extensive goals of the semantic web in a more dynamic fashion than currently can be uh, accomplished. On to our last but not least speaker, Michael Gruninger from University of Toronto will talk to us about color, the common logic ontology repository. So Michael, are you ready? Yes. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Uh, yeah, so I'll be uh, giving a little brief overview of a, of a project that's just uh, starting up uh, or has started up and that has, uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of synergy with uh, OOR. Uh, and the, the primary motivation um, for this actually kind of arose as earlier ontology summit sponsored by Ontolog, 
primarily in 2006, the Upper Ontologies uh, Summit that brought together people from uh, Dolce, uh, Psych, Sumo, BFO, PSL, and others. Um, in 2008, well, last year there was the Open Ontology Repository uh, Summit, where some of these other these ideas that we'll be we're talking about today got kicked off. And uh, this coming year, in 2009, um, we have this Towards Ontology-Based Standards uh, kind of summit. And so the, these three uh, kind of all tie together uh, by the following question, right? How can an open ontology repository uh, support the integration of these uh, upper ontologies? And how can it also support the design and reuse of new ontologies uh, that are being uh that are kind of supporting existing and emerging standards. So this leads to one of the uh, kind of requirements that we saw. A lot of these upper ontologies uh, kind of require the expressiveness of common logic in order to capture their axioms and also to capture their different kinds of relationships. And it's also anticipated uh, that uh, some of the new ontologies for uh, standards-based ontology-based standards uh, will also require some of the expressiveness of common logic. And so moving to slide three, uh, what we want to be able to do is to ensure that the open ontology repository uh, from the software functionality perspective that we're talking about today uh, can support the inclusion of common logic ontolo ontologies, uh, can also characterize the different and new kinds of logical relationships between such common logic uh, ontologies within the repository and in this way form what we were calling Colore, uh, the Italian word for color, uh, common logic ontology repository. Uh, and so it, to some extent, um, the logical relationships uh, you know, should be able to be covered by uh, kind of extending the existing um, uh, ontology metadata. Um, moving to slide four, uh, but one of the other aspects of the project uh, kind of in parallel to the software functionality aspects of the uh, repository are just identifying uh, some of these new kinds of logical relationships between ontologies. Uh, some of these kind of arise or become more prominent when you're looking at common logic um, kinds of ontologies. Now, the idea of consistency, okay, that, that kind of applies to all kinds of other ontologies. Uh, and, but there are other kinds of, of relationships, such as extensions, um, where... Um, one ontology kind of uses and extends cons uh, the uh, axioms in particular ways, maybe to allow uh, new kinds of inferences to be made, uh, or in some cases it actually, is, although it's an extension, it actually doesn't really uh, allow new things to be said. Uh, you're just saying equivalent things in different ways. And so a lot of the discussion that you might be seeing on the uh, kind of ontology forum uh, lists very often are people saying, well, you know, I have two different kinds of ontologies, 3D versus 4D, or different sets of primitives, and people really need to understand, well, are these two ontologies that use different kinds of primitives, are they really different um, are, at some fundamental level? Are they different but only in a kind of a superficial way? Uh, or is there a possible... Uh, kind of mapping between them that actually shows that they're equivalent. And this last uh, sub-bullet on this on slide four is talking about this idea of what's called definable interpretation. What it was basically saying is that one uh, ontology is able to define all the terms in the other ontology using its axioms. And using this kind of an approach, actually, there are a lot of 
seemingly different ontologies that actually are equivalent in this way. Uh, time, the, if you have a, a time point ontology and a time interval ontology, you can show that one can be defined, definably interpretable in the other. Uh, there are different kind, there are two different, uh, fundamental, uh, ontologies for geometry. Uh, one proposed by, um, Hilbert about a hundred years ago in which points, lines, and planes are primitives. Another one proposed by Tarski about 50 years ago in which only points are primitives. And it turns out that different CAD tools, uh, use, uh, one or the other of these two ontologies. And again, even though they use different primitives, um, it can be shown that one they each can be definably interpreted in the other. So at some deep level, they actually are equivalent. And so one of the uh, things that we want to be able to determine and, and, and uh, some research questions to address with this repository is, is this also the case with other upper ontologies? Uh, is it the case that, although they look different on the surface, they really are underneath everything, uh, basically uh, talking about the same kind of, of uh, semantics? Uh, now moving to slide five, um, another uh, research question that we wanted to address were, was, well, what are some of the other barriers to uh, kind of reusability of ontologies? Uh, so if we put ontologies into the repository, what are some barriers for people to actually reuse them? Now, one is the observation that consistency is not enough. Uh, so this is a, a set of three, diff uh, three uh, common logic axioms. Uh, the first says no one supervises themselves. Um, the other one says that uh, if uh, someone's a CEO and someone else is an employee, then the CEO uh, supervises the employee. And the third axiom says that CEOs are themselves employees. Now, these three axioms together are not inconsistent. They are consistent. Um, but it turns out that they, what they do is they entail, you can infer from these three axioms, that there does not exist a CEO. So, you know, although that might be an interesting world, whether or not CEOs for companies, um, you, uh, once you add any particular, you know, kind of uh, instance data for a particular company, well, there will be a CEO, and at that point, uh, these three axioms together with that particular instance data uh, will be inconsistent. And this is often why people want to include instance data with their ontologies, is to kind of identify or bring to, to the foreground uh, some of these perhaps unintended entailments um, of, of, of the other sets of axioms. And so <clears throat> what we have found, moving on to slide six, is that we want to get a, uh, gain a deeper understanding uh, of all the different possible models or interpretations of an ontology. And we have also found that by doing this kind of underlying formal work, uh, we're identifying uh, what really is getting reused uh, or what is really being shared between ontologies. And so uh, the logicians and mathematicians have these, uh, this technique called representation theorems, where what they do is they represent the models for particular ontologies using other classes of mathematical structures. Uh, so, for example, there is uh, this uh, area of ontologies called myriad topologies, where you are studying the concepts of parthood and how those parts are connected to each other. Now, it turns out that the models of these different myriad topologies uh, are represented by different classes of lattices, mathematical structures called lattices. And we can gain a lot of insight into the relationships between different mirror topologies by looking at the relationships between the different classes of lattices that are used to represent them, uh, because the mathematicians have studied the lattices uh, in a more detailed way. Uh, and we've also shown how uh, um, the process specification language, different models of PSL core, and other uh, process ontologies can also be the relationships between them can also be understood 
by looking at these underlying mathematical structures. Uh, and the thing is that these underlying mathematical structures are themselves uh, axiomatized uh, by different um, ontologies. Uh, so moving on to uh, slide seven, um, what we want to do then is pull all this together uh, into uh, a repository uh, at a software level that can be reused, but which also has these solid logical foundations. Uh, again, so it can serve as solid foundations for, for uh, quality evaluation, for examining whether there are unintended interpretations, and for understanding more deeply relationships between ontologies in the repository. And so this, uh, we started this project here in my lab in, this, in the past few months called, uh, in which we wanted to build this repository called Colore that would serve as a testbed for different uh, ontology evaluation techniques, evaluation techniques, different integration techniques, uh, and so on. And so following, uh, moving on to slide eight, uh, following this kind of the earlier points I was just mentioning, uh, there are basically going to be three kinds of layers uh, within uh, Calore. Uh, the, fa the foundation, there will be these uh, kind of general mathematical structures. So things like geometry, different kind of structures from algebra, different structures from combinatorics like orderings and lattices and graphs. And these ontologies will serve as the basis for the, what I was calling the representation theorems earlier. And, and the, the idea was, is kind of that this, you're not going to be just posting all the mathematical theories you can find, uh, but rather uh, kind of identifying from other existing uh, ontologies what are the mathematical structures that we need in order to really characterize um, their models. And that's uh, on slide nine the second layer of the repository consisting of these generic uh, ontologies. And so, uh, so far, uh, we have actually, uh, we ha have all the common logic modules and axioms for these uh, different ontologies. And uh, I will be having a, a couple of students beginning uh, in April who will be, uh, you know, kind of extending the functionality of, um, uh, you know, the uh, BioPortal um, uh, ontology repository to kind of incorporate uh, these common logic mod, uh, modules and also the associated metadata. So, so far we have um, modules for process ontologies, for the different time ontologies, the different mirror, topolo mirror topology ontologies. And you know, again, what we have found is that uh, what these generic ontologies often share is that a more abstract, generic, uh, logical uh, perspective, they share those underlying uh, concepts. So, again, different mere topology ontologies share different, can be shared at the level of, of lattices. Different process ontologies can be shared at the, at the level of the orderings over their occurrences of activities and so on. And the time ontologies can also be uh, shared at the different levels of the orderings over their time points or their, their intervals. Uh, now, finally, on, on, on slide 10, um, this isn't the point of today's talk, but uh, for the upcoming summit, is that all of this, um, you know, again, is not just a nice uh, kind of artifact to put out there, but hopefully this repository will serve as the, the uh, foundation uh, for building um, ontologies for uh, new or other existing um, uh, standards, I'd say, in, in manufacturing. Uh, but also uh, ontologies for emerging standards. And so we really want to be able to use this repository uh, to build new kinds of ontologies, not just browse and, and uh, reuse and download. Uh, so then on slide 11, 
we see that uh, kind of a, the, the picture, the diff different levels, the bottom purple level being the mathematical structure, the ontologies that get reused in different ways by these generic ontologies for time and process and mere topology, which then serve as the basis for designing the new ontologies for manufacturing standards. Uh, so then on the last slide, slide 12, uh, again, just summarizing, uh, uh, the near-term objective is how we can incorporate uh, the common logic ontologies that we have uh, uh, coded up, uh, how we can incorporate them into the OOR architecture. Uh, so on the one hand, there'll be the different kinds of, of uh, relate logical relationships between ontologies uh, that will provide, uh, that will require new metadata. So I want to extend the metadata, uh, say, of BioPortal. Um, but also, what are the other challenges for incorporating common logic uh, modules within the repository as just as now OWL um, uh, ontologies are incorporated and to also then come up with new scenarios for uh, how people would interact with this repository so they get the design of new ontologies. Uh, Ali Hashemi, a um, master's student who just graduated from my lab, uh, has two um, uh, module, uh, two different, uh, sorry, algorithms that uh, kind of build on this notion of an ontology repository in common logic. One um, uh, algorithm helps people, guides people to write common logic axioms for their ontologies, not uh, guiding them in terms of kind of ontology patterns, but trying to identify what their intended semantics are for their terms and searches through the repository to find the, the uh, set of axioms that best matches those intended interpretations. And the other uh, algorithm, uh, given two different sets of common logic um, axioms or ontologies, uh, tries to identify uh, which ontologies in the repository uh, in effectively form the, the most that those two ontologies can share. So it's a kind of a semantic mapping uh, generation uh, kind of algorithm. And other kinds of scenarios that would really drive uh, kind of the uh, identification of new kinds of relationships uh, between ontologies in the repository. So it's just a brief uh, kind of overview. Um, and I kind of wanted to be brief so that we can move on to uh, discussions. Well, thank you, Michael. This is Todd. I think you've identified a whole bunch more work and problems that we have to resolve. Right. First, in terms of common logic, I would view that as just another uh, uh, module that gets plugged in. However, the issue that you brought up in terms of models of ontology is something that we hadn't considered earlier. And that itself uh, would, could be another module, but its behavior and, and its interactions with other parts of the uh, repository would have to be investigated, which I assume your students will be able to do. Right. Yeah, now, and that's kind of part of the, uh, the kind of the quality evaluation, too, of the ontologies. Well, some of the uh, notions that you suggested are more sophisticated than just that. True. Um, and that itself is a whole other large layer of, of, of capabilities that we hadn't anticipated or thought about, but certainly they would be of great value, especially in the development of additional standards or uh, using it as a qualitative measure, as you suggested, to, to define or refine existing uh, ontologies. Exactly. And you also have, gone, have brought up this other nagging point of instance data, uh, which we're probably going to have to have a very long discussion about to figure out how to resolve it. Certainly, we don't expect, uh, so we say, the public repositories to maintain instance data for everything under the sun. However, if there are private instances of such repositories, then maybe those people will want to do that, and maybe it's just a deployment issue. However, the architecture is going to have to address that in some fashion at some point. Yes, that's right. We can't avoid the problem uh, forever. 
Uh, maybe if we wish hard, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it would be a wise move. Uh, so I would like, I'd like, first of all, to thank all the speakers today for, for, for going to the trouble of giving us a great deal of information and knowledge and now a whole bunch of more problems to solve. So from, to Mark, Natasha, and Mike Dean, and Paul, and Andreas, uh, Matthew, Ken, and finally Michael, thank you for that. And, of course, uh, common logic I prefer, but you have to deal with the, everyone else in the world. That's why we're going to focus on Al first. I included that as the core. Uh, there's a majority of stuff out there in Al right now, so we have to deal with that. And then as we learn from that, we can extend it and allow other modules to plug in. But again, this other uh, issue of the ontology model, which I personally find very fascinating, is a whole other meta-meta layer of capabilities and functions that we're going to have to think hard about. Hopefully, your team, Michael, can uh, help solve some of those problems uh, sooner than we can. Well, yeah, that's what I'm, uh, I was, it was kind of interesting about this is that if this uh, uh, project can really serve as a way of bringing all of these disparate uh, other projects together in a kind of a coordinated way. As we saw today, all of our, all the speakers today, we're all kind of working on different pieces, and uh, it'll be great if the OR can, uh, you know, and Autolog can really, I say, I, uh, identify all the synergies between the different groups. And actually, uh, one of the issues, as you know from all the discussion, is, as I mentioned, the distinction between terminology and what other people might call formal ontologies. Mm -hmm. Now, your perspective is a mathematical perspective, and that's certainly closer to the, to the, the formal ontologies. However, I believe, as you've noticed, as has noted, it can be used to help distinguish those social terminology sets or social ontologies, socially based ontologies that we use on a daily basis. That's right. That's right. And so what we really, um, you know, want to try to do is to identify, uh, you know, what are the kind of implicit barriers to reusability and shareability of ontologies. And it's very often the case that it's because there are these kind of unstated assumptions that are kind of built into the ontologies. And what we want to try to do is make those explicit and to see, again, are they just superficial differences um, that we can kind of easily handle by uh, kind of nice high-level mappings, or are they really kind of deeper fundamental issues that are kind of really different ways of looking at the world? Yes. Uh, I was going to include some notion of um, NCOIC net-centric principles in my presentation, but I decided to drop it since those principles are not publicly available yet. But one of them has to do with explicitness. When you're living in a net-centric world, you have to be explicit about everything. And, of course, once you start drilling down and querying people as to what they really mean, uh, you get you run into differences. However, I think your your uh, paradigm can provide a mechanism to identify the differences more or the the commonalities more easily. That's yeah, that's the hope. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then like, and the other you know, idea too is to be able to use exploit the repository as much as possible to you know lever because you're leveraging off this previous experience that everyone has been contributing to. Uh, to you know to kind of use that as the way of guiding uh, the understanding of these relationships. And I have to admit, at this point, it's not clear to me how the ontology repository would support that evolution of understanding. Mm. But as we said, we're supposed to be able to supporting evolutionary development of the OOR in the first place. And uh, I suspect we're going to have to go back and make changes once we learn more. Now, I, I just realized another item that you brought up that I don't think we have addressed in the ontology summit or any of the subsequent discussions is the notion of theories. And if you like, the way the semantic web people talk about it are rules. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've addressed how, or if, I, if I'm wrong, please correct me, how we're going to address a rule set or theories. Um, so the theories as being uh, uh, kind of modules in and of themselves. Yes. Yeah. Well, 
distinct from the ontologies that are underlying them. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I guess that's kind of one um, you know, issue of exactly how the repository kind of treats uh, ontologies. You know, like, uh, in this common logic sense, uh, you just simply have modules, you know, sets of axioms. And if we have the repository is uh, kind of on language independent, then we could we would just simply treat each theory, you know, as a set of expressions in whatever underlying language. And so there would be, you know, one module, uh, one component in the uh, uh, repository that would be OWL time. And there'd be another one which would be the, you know, the common logic axioms for time, you know, coming out of, uh, uh, you know, the catalog of temporal theories that Pat Hayes kind of assembled from Van Bentham's work too. Right. And, and so then the question would be, well, how are those two different, uh, ontologies related to each other, right? Even though they're both about time, it's just that they're represented in different, uh, languages. Well, from, from an operational perspective, do we have to then have separate metadata associated with those to distinguish them properly to allow, to facilitate the searching, discovery, and other operations you'd like to perform? Or not? Well, definitely we'll, we'll need uh, other kinds of metadata to kind of, uh, uh, you know, really get at the subtle relationships. You know, the problem is that we don't want to have a, an explosion of metadata, uh, <laughs> you know, different kinds of metadata, because then it'll be, it'll be rather unwieldy to use. Um, you know, we will want to also have kind of around uh, different kinds of, of uh Either trans, well, yeah, translators, I guess, at one a certain level, um, but also the kind of the ability to say this is a kind of a language mapping. So, how is owl time related to uh, common logic time, for example? Because you know you're, you're mapping from owl to common logic, uh, but as distinct from an underlying semantic mapping, right? Oh, time point here is also time point there. Um, so. Uh, it won't be enough just to say that, you know, the one metadata is identifying what the language is. We'll also want to be able to utilize that metadata in, in uh, special ways, again, to, to know that, you know, owl time, how does owl time relate to, uh, you know, a particular common logic time theory. But in, in a sense, you know, they're all, all ontologies are theories. They're just uh, theories in, in different languages. But also, what you're suggesting brings up a notion of dynamism that might be where you start with the metadata, you find ontologies that map some of those criteria, but then you'd like to dynamically create additional queries to refine your original search. That's true. Now, yeah. Yeah. graduate students, uh, they could go to town on that one. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll also really need to identify some of these more sophisticated use case scenarios. Uh, so again, I, I, this is going to be an evolutionary process uh, of both uh, infrastructure development, architecture, and knowledge. Yep. Yep. So, Peter, what shall we do next? Okay, we should have open discussion segment uh, now that it's such a rare occasion to get uh, this expert panel and uh, the enthusiastic participants together. Uh, so let's line up the people who have a remark to make or have questions and answers uh, for the panel of, uh, for each other. In view of the time we have left, I would suggest we all focus on sort of OOR development, particularly software development. So people who have, I mean, I know all the speakers brought up a phenomenal uh, number of interesting questions and things that we want to find out more. But let's focus on how we coordinate collaboration, particularly among the, uh, among the people who are 
who are already de- developing the disparate pieces, how we could sort of uh, coordinate, get everyone into the collaboration mode. As Mark Musen mentioned earlier, and I believe Mike Dean also did, uh, the there there is the uh, bioportal, the NCBO bioportal subversion repository, and if we are developing on top of that, then participating developers should first sign up into that uh, subversion repository. I I believe Mark already mentioned that um, Michael. Uh, and your students will be participating, and we are definitely looking forward to, let's say, Ken and uh, Paul and and Andreas, Matthew, and the rest of the NEON people to make contribution to that repository. The other one that has been set up is the OOR uh, repository at SAM Web Central. Uh, which Mike has been running. Uh, we don't have much work there yet, but Mike did mention that uh, this will continue to be available in case someone wants to sort of run a fairly independent sub-project before it gets merged into, let's say, the uh, BioPortal branch. Then that way uh, we, we could, uh, it is, the person can work with Mike to deposit code in that repository as well. If Eventually, we hope this whole OR effort uh, would collaborate with the NCBO and all the other efforts, and then it all sort of merges back and enhance everybody's work. So uh, that's the comment I would like to make. And again, uh, if you have a, a, anyone who has a, a remark to make or question to ask, uh, please raise your hand by pressing on the hand button. Ravi's hand is up, Peter. Yeah, Ravi's hand is up. So, Ravi, you're next. Uh, press star three to unmute yourself. Yes, Peter. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Peter. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Uh, my question, since you restricted us only to talk about OR, I was more interested in talking to Mike Gruninger on the first order logic, but I will restrict to Todd right now and say, Todd, just a clarification, you meant to say that our OR does allow you to put the instance of the ontology also on the repository and not just the metadata about the ontology. Well, no, that's uh, pointed out to me an issue that has yet to be resolved. Yes. At some point during the ontology summit, I believe it's in the communique, um, maybe it's only on the requirements page, so maybe it's not in the communique, but the issue of having instance data there could be a problem. But now it has been, has been pointed out by Peter and by Doug along the way that there are ontologies in which you need to have the instance data there. Yes. I that. Otherwise, um, uh, the metadata alone does not semantically integrate to produce uh, ontology from just the, the repository elements alone. So we may need to sometimes tightly couple the yeah, so OR with the instance. Yeah, so we're going and to have sometimes to we may be able to detach it also. We're going to have to examine which ontologies absolutely require some instance data to be there and then control that. And again, part of this is a performance issue. Part of it is just a cost issue if you're going to support all those drives to support all that instance data. But then again, as, as I mentioned, if it's going to be, if the OR 
is going to be installed and deployed as a behind a corporate firewall or a government firewall, and they wish to keep that as a place for instance data also, we should probably be able to support that. But if you're going to have a public one, say, run by CIM, then maybe they don't want to host terabytes and terabytes of instance data. Yeah, this was very good. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because it's related also to the resources that have to be maintained, and they are costly sometimes. But uh, like uh, I saw some examples from Neon and others today, they do host a lot of uh, ontologies on their portals. Okay. Yep. So the second question for Todd, which is related to OR, is towards the end. I do distinguish uh, between rules and uh, logic, first-order logic. So the tying the things that tie them together, rules are things to governance and policies, while the logic is uh, first-order logic takes us from philosophy to mathematical representations. That's Just a comment. The policies and governance of the OOR? Uh, you were mentioning the rules and the business rules, the, the rules of logic, uh, rules of the repository on how to interoperate among ontologies. Well, no, I believe the comment I made what had to do with rules as being associated with an ontology to define a theory relative to that ontology. And uh, the rules and the logic and representation in math will all get intertwined if we examine them closely. So I don't know if mathematicians believe in the rules like we people do in IT industry. Correct. In math, math, from a mathematical perspective, I don't distinguish between rules and, and uh, arbitrary formulas in a language. Yeah. Now, the, the notion of this distinction is something that comes about from, if you like, the IT community or the web community also. But my point was that I don't recall whether we had identified or figured out how to deal with rules as separate from just... We, we definitely our... need to deal with rules, Todd. I agree with you in the OOR um, physical repository, yes. Yes, I agree there. But I was only just worrying about the connection with logic there. Where well, we assume that the representation logic has, uh, the representation language has some logic behind it as opposed to arbitrary, arbitrary strings. Yes, sir. And since there are four more people after me, three more, so I will reserve to come back, Peter, if you would allow to ask one question to Mike Gruninger later. Of course. Okay, and thank you, Ravi. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, Carlos, uh, start three. Carlos, read. Hello, this is Carlos. Can you? Yeah, we can hear you now. Yes, we can hear you. I have a remark and a couple of questions. The remark is that we are, I'm uh, speaking on behalf of the Marine Metadata Interoperability. We developed a few modules on our own uh, integrated with the BioPortal. So this is a case of a successful deployment of BioPortal. And uh, questions. Uh, my questions are related with APIs. I know that uh, OOR already developed to some extent uh, an API for dealing with repositories and registries for ontologies. No, uh, not exactly. Uh, since the current effort is to integrate with the BioPortal, my question is if there is some goal related with integrating these APIs. Or, for example, if BioPortal or there is going to be some module 
uh, some kind of middleman module that integrates the two APIs or what, what, what sort of effort is in that regard? And the second one is an extension of this question is, at large, uh, thinking more broadly, is, does it, does it make any sense to have like a overarching, overarching API that maybe I'm thinking about Neon and other efforts to have some kind of a standard API to deal with ontology repositories and registries? Thank you. I believe, uh uh, Peter Yim here. Mark Musen and, uh, and Natasha uh, and Mike had to leave early, but uh, Benjamin Dye and Trish Wetzel from uh, Stanford uh, BMIR and, and NCBO are at hand. So maybe uh, either Benjamin might want to take on Carlos' question? Sure. This is Benjamin Dye. Well, first... Uh, I'm not familiar with the API, uh, Carlos. Uh, I think Todd was going to mention a little bit about the kind of update on the API that was uh, developed by OOR. Um, but I can respond to the uh, question of really kind of a general, really actually a general question of uh, if there is an API or services that is are, are desired by the OOR uh, software, starting with, you know, using what we have in the Bob portal, um, part of this collaboration is actually to do that kind of thing, is, is consider what, it, what are the capabilities and APIs that is needed by the, the, uh, um, OOR community, um, and part of the open source collaboration would be to consider these kind of features, you know, uh, uh, feature, uh, feature at a time, and then, execute the appropriate open source, co you know, develop collaboration to get those features in if it's deemed, you know, critical for the community. So that, that's kind of my generic response on that side. But I think, Todd, you were going to mention something about the API that Carlos uh, uh, suggested. Oh, and by the way, Carlos, uh, we're, we're glad that the, uh, mon the Marine um, repository is doing well. Yes, uh, the OOR has not developed any APIs per se. Mike Dean developed some prototype code last year to give some idea as to how OOR might look. And that's as far as we've gotten. But now with uh, our access to the bio portal as a sandbox, we'll start ex ex um, examining that. As I said, I'm going to generate the UML diagrams for that. And that's why I asked the question earlier about a neon and, and oops, auto select, whether we can get access to their code and their other artifacts design artifacts to make use of and examine to see how we can make use of it directly, extend it, look for good ideas, or whatever. Does that answer the question, Carlos? Yes. Uh, no, 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 I'm not Carlos, but uh, I, I noticed, like, either Paul or Andreas uh, has also a, a, a remark to make as, as far as uh, APIs are concerned. So maybe... Uh, is that Paul or Andres and Matthew too? Since uh, since Carlos did ask his question of the Neon uh, developers as well. Um, so here is here is Andreas speaking. I made the comment, and um, this um, REST-based linked data access would be for for us very interesting because we would be able to 
um, harvest um, the ontologies in the ontology repository um, directly with the infrastructure, and it would also link very well into the whole semantic web community link data effort. So that's just some um, feature to consider for for a future version, which is probably not enough for a fully-fledged ontology repository, but at least allows people to link to these things and get the data out. That would be good. Yeah, Andreas, this is Benjamin. Um, um, yeah, we've actually dabbled a little bit in that space, and we recognize the value of those connections with the linked data effort. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a good, good suggestion. Uh, Andreas, this is Todd. Are, are you or anyone from your group going to come to the Semantic Web Conference in October and present your, your material, your, your, your work? Um, uh, to the Semtech, you mean? No, no, the International Semantic Web Conference. Yes, we oh, uh, yeah, it's possible. It's possible, yes. So, um, yeah, if, if we should um, organize a bird of feather session or somewhere, uh, something there, uh, it would be very interesting to do that. Peter, I guess Matthew is up next. Right. Does that answer your question, Carlos, at least in a sense? Peter, thank you. Okay, and, and since Carlos uh, and, and the MM Marine Metadata Group are bringing up one instance of the file portal tech, uh, repository, uh, OR, uh, we are definitely going to look forward to maybe uh, hosting another session whereby we could focus on the developments around the bioportal technology, uh, in which case, I mean, uh, we definitely would welcome the MMI uh, folks to join us and share their experience and insights. Sure, Peter, yes. So, uh, Matthew. You have your hands up. You might want to start addressing the API issues and then move on to your uh, remarks. Matthew? Uh, yes. And actually, I won't have to do that because my remark is very, very related to the API issue. Um, it is, again, you know, as a, as a more abstract and higher level. Uh, I, I, I want to say, my, you know, one of the things uh, which is more clear every time I talk to anybody about ontology repositories is that there are many, many, many initiatives currently. And uh, I completely agree with uh, what Andreas said. I mean, one essential element for this sort of repository is to provide at least basis for APIs and uh, for REST access. Um, now, one of the, the side effects of having all these many initiatives is that uh, it's pretty hard to find what to reuse and how to, to use it. You mentioned that it's uh, one of the big tasks is actually to get through all this initiative and understand what can be done with it. Uh, and as far as I understand, the current plan is to implement the core of the OR uh, repository with a bioportal and to see later if something can be, if it can be extended with other initiatives. So my, my basic question uh, which is so I said they related. Will um, should that be a role of OR or the OR initiative to uh, try to come up with proposals for standards to interact with ontology repositories and to make ontology repositories communicate with each other to have this uh, to kind of define the protocol so that 
any repository, whatever it is, focus or particular domain, uh, will have, all the repositories will have a, common, a kind of common way to interact with applications or with users and could communicate with each other, which seem to be, well, it's, to me, might, might be a more, um, uh, a nicer and easier approach to integrating different, different initiatives. Not sure if it was clear. Um, Todd, your your notion for having an RFI for a, an OOR is quite interesting. The problem is I don't know who we would present it to. We don't have any money to back it up. The other issue about the BioPortal, I, I don't think I suggested, I don't think anyone suggested that BioPortal is the core of the OOR. I use that term core so that it would give us a focus because of the number of services and capabilities we would like to have an open ontology repository have, that's not feasible from a scheduled time perspective. So I would like to uh, use that term core to help clarify what's the first thing that we can put out there that will provide some of the capabilities and also give us the basis to move forward as we learn from all these other efforts, yours for instance, that are taking place now. Whether they sh should then expend additional effort to provide some uh, interoperability among the various ontology repositories has yet to be decided, because again, that will take away from our resources, time, and capability implementation. So I don't have answers to those yet. I think one yeah. of the things that we will need to schedule a meeting for is to review the details of all the projects that are going out there and figure out how we can assess them. Yeah, and what I was meaning was it was not necessarily at implementation level, but in some way, since, I mean, <clears throat> the OR initiative seems to be, uh, to have the potential to be federating all this effort in some way, to be able to include different actors in uh, building ontology repositories, and yes. so to provide some form of common interface for, you know, everybody who would like to build an ontology repository could comply with an abstraction of what an ontology repository is, and yes. that would help a lot the integration effort. Well, right now, OOR and the Ontolog Forum is providing a, an integration, uh, social integration network, and it would be my goal to provide a specification that's sufficient to allow anyone to, to develop or deploy one based on the specification and hence be interoperable and be able to federate with others that exist out there. Okay, so you want to... Yes, I, I think we, we, are, we are sort of violently agreeing with one another. So let me put a plug in here by asking everyone who's interested to sort of see OR move forward to come to our uh, team meetings, which is on Fridays every other week. And most of the people here are already on the mailing list, so you do get the announcement about meeting times. So do come, because that's where the sort of uh, nuts and bolts are being discussed. Uh, we definitely, I mean, it's, it's not N-O-R effort, actually, but it is our O-O-R effort, and whoever comes to the meetings, I mean, gets to at least map out where we are going. 
And when is the next meeting, Peter?、Uh, the next one will be Friday, March the sixth, roughly about two weeks from now. From now. So we are skipping tomorrow because we are, we already met today.、Uh, the next meeting will be March sixth, Friday, uh, uh, nine nine o'clock Pacific time, and、uh, we'll we'll have the announcements and the reminders out. So uh, uh, I'm going to have to drop off, Peter. This is Todd. I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Okay.、Uh, so Paul, still,、uh, either Paul or Andreas, still has his hand up.、Uh, so,、uh, so your floor. Your floor. Paul. Yeah, that's Paul. So、uh, it's actually going back to、uh, some of the questions before that Ravi brings brought up on the instances, but that, that's a topic that、uh, was brought up a couple of times in this、uh, panel. So.、Um, Yeah. So one one interesting thing that、uh, we think is、uh, is bringing onto select in connection with the Swissies Manic Web Search Engine is actually exactly that of、uh, of having the ontologies in the onto select repository, but connecting that with all the instance data that has been gathered in Swissie and and will be further gathered, of course. So、uh, so an interesting thing is there also that、uh, ontologies can actually be、uh, potentially ranked on on use. So,、uh, so it's not just the abstract model that that the ontology represents, but it's also the actual instances, the data that are connected to those ontologies, and they, the 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 use is actually uh, uh, could be a ranking、uh, score. So, it would be. Paul, this is Todd. Yep. Sorry, I didn't drop off yet. Your your query got my interest.、Um, can your capability be used for a dynamic ontology creation or modification? Um, in 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 terms of merging and no, in terms of discovery. If I if I particular choose a particular concept, whatever, and I start searching on that, look all the things that are linked to it. Does that linking capability provide some sort of ontological structure that could be then reused? But that I mean, that's potentially something to、uh, that that could come out of that also of、uh, of, of using the instance data in terms of. Of pruning some ontologies and merging some together that have strong instance, uh, uh, uh,、um, you know, uh, in, in, well, a lot of instances in, in different branches. So if that's what you're referring to. Well, no, no. I, I guess I was just thinking of dynamically creating an ontology off the web. In, in, you, okay, so now you're, you're you're looking into things like ontology learning, where where you it's viewed as that yes, or just yeah. Again, okay, if you, well, if you take the perspective that a lot of the stuff on the web has some ontological structure behind it, and it's socially driven or motivated, then it's going to be very dynamic. And given any particular day, what is the the ontological structure of a particular term? Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's. Okay, that's a more complex thing, and there's probably at least、uh, three important uh, uh, areas there that we that you should try to connect here,、uh, which is the ontologies, the instances, and and sort of、um, further data that is out there that has that, that could be integrated into these ontologies and give evidence for、uh, for new concepts, for new、uh, relations, new properties, and so on. So, so all of this, yes. I mean, th- these are things that、uh, that we're definitely thinking of and exploring. I mean, but but these are, I mean, I think these are interesting,、um, very interesting, and、uh, things we will explore. But in terms of 
of, of research. Um, so in terms of the repository, so coming back to my first uh, uh, remark, was was really just making that connection between the ontology model and the ontology instances. And, and having that with OntoSelect and Swizzy uh, will give us, uh, we think, an interesting start in, in the more advanced directions that you're that you're pointing at. Hey, is that uh, Benjamin Dai? I'm here still. No, who was speaking? Thank you. From uh, talking from there in Galway. But who was responding to Paul? Todd Schneider from Raytheon. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. That's it. Thank you. I would hope that it helps us to announce ourselves. Everybody doesn't recognize everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Uh, Thanks, Paul. My question to Paul was, um, if I may butt in now to Paul. So is, is this, I mean, we, we, uh, we almost have to wrap up. Can you finish in one minute, Ravi? Me? Ravi, just uh, 10 seconds. I was saying, are there tools to clean up the duplication and uh, noise uh, that others might want to interject in the backend data sources from which ontologies are collected, Paul? Um, Andreas here, I take that question. Um, So if you just take enough data and run a page rank-like algorithm on it, for example, then some of the noise goes away. You still have some noise in there, but um, this ranking and taking into account enough contributions of people uh, will give you a smoother result um, than when you don't take all the contributions into account. But if can you target can you target specific backend authoritative data sources? You can generate a rank for a data source. So the data sources could be or are in our system in fact ranked. So you have a priori- priority of the data sources, and if you cut off the sort of unreliable ones, you get a cleaner result. Thank you. We can do the rest on email, I guess. Would yes. be very interesting. And, and I request every speaker to please uh, read my questions on the soap web, whatever you call chat session. Yes, and then please use the OOR forum for discussions relating to this project. So uh, since Todd has to go, so I'll, I'll take over and and sort of wrap up the session. And of course, uh, thank you very, very much to uh, Todd for organizing this, uh, for taking the initiative, and to all the panelists for their for sharing their insights and work in, and to the teams that have put the first instance of OOR together for experimentation and for everyone uh, who has been able to join us today. Uh, there are a couple of people who weren't able to join us, which I also would like to thank. Uh, that, that would include uh, Peter Hasse, uh from Karlsruhe who developed OMV, which is sort of taking a, a fairly central role in a lot of the uh, ontology uh, metadata work in almost uh, uh, across the board here. And then I would also want to thank Enrico Mota, who 
couldn't be with us, but has recommended that Matthew come uh, present on the ongoing uh, NEON work. Uh, we are getting huge support from Enrico, so uh, I'm really happy that finally, I mean, the OR effort is uh, stretching on a fairly global basis. I noticed, I mean, someone from China was with us uh, also. So at, at this call, uh, our, our contingent from Europe, uh, various people from, uh, from the United States as well. So thank you, everyone. And as usual, this session has been recorded in the audio archive, the chat transcript, and so on, will be posted to the session page. That's it, and thank you very much, everyone. Bye-bye.